Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ podcast. My name is Phil Bruns. Thank you so much for taking time for your day to be with us. Well, today we're so excited to have Ezra Briggs come and bring us a lesson on the names of God as we continue our series on the names of God. This lesson today is going to challenge our thinking and expand our knowledge of God and who God is in our lives. So stay tuned. Hello, today I'm looking forward to talking about the name El Shaddai, which is a name of God that appears multiple times in the Bible. We'll do a quick tour of the Old Testament to see where the name Shaddai shows up, and then we'll focus on the book of Ruth, specifically on Naomi's journey with understanding who God is. And then I'll share a bit of my own journey. But before we get into that, I want to introduce the idea of a theodicy odyssey, which is the main reason that I want to bring this message to you today. A friend of mine introduced this term to me. So a theodicy is a way of thinking that tries to understand God's goodness in a world full of evil. And an odyssey is an epic journey full of danger, excitement, hardships, and often a happy ending. My friend Chris pointed out to me that these words are not only similar in the way they sound, but in many other facets. So in this message, I hope to share with you my journey and Naomi's journey in learning about who God is and how he's so much more than we can imagine and how that has changed our lives. The name El Shaddai has two components, the word El, which is a word for God with unknown origins, and the word Shaddai. The Hebrew word Shaddai has a complex meaning. It can mean nourisher, self-sufficient one, rainmaker, abundantly, or destroyer. As a side note, I want to say that I don't know that much Hebrew at all, but I know enough Hebrew to be dangerous. So I recommend double-checking all of my Hebrew work in this lesson and in any other lesson that I do. So the name Shaddai is often translated as Almighty into various English translations of the Bible. Almighty is also used to translate the word Seboath, which is another name of God which means Lord of Hosts. And so when we see Almighty in the Bible, it could be saying El Shaddai or it could be saying Seboath. There's also the name Pantocrator, which means all-holding, it's a more modern Greek word that expresses the capacity for, but not the exercise of, power. And that is often used in Greek translations of the Old Testament as the word Shaddai. So let's look at where Shaddai shows up in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures are broken up into three separate parts, not usually showed this way in our English Bibles, but the ancient Hebrews had a way of delineating three portions of the Bible. There was Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then there were the prophets and the writings. And again, these sections don't look the same as they do in our English Bibles. But we'll look at where Shaddai shows up in each of these different sections. In Torah, we see Shaddai defined as a nourisher and an abundant God. This makes sense because Shaddai sounds like the Hebrew word shad, which means a mother's breast, which supplies complete nourishment for a baby. The first mention is in Genesis 17, verse 1, where God comes to Abraham 13 years after his son Ishmael was born. And God says, I am El Shaddai. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. So God is coming to Abraham to set him right. He's telling him to repent, and he's setting up a covenant where God is in charge of Abraham and his reproduction, not Abraham himself, but also reaffirming his promise to make Abraham's family fruitful. 
Sarah, at this point, is too old to nourish a baby from her own breasts, but God assures Abraham that God, Shaddai, will be the one to nourish his family. From there, the name Shaddai gets passed from father to son, always in reference to that promise to Abraham and his family. From Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob to Joseph and his other sons. Then, in the prophet section of the Bible, we see a completely different usage of the name Shaddai. We see Shaddai as destruction. The word destruction is a homonym for the word breast. They're both this word shad in Hebrew. So if we look at the passages where the name of God shows up in the prophets, we see in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 24 and again in chapter 10 verse 5, the sound of mighty wings and rushing water is compared with the voice of Shaddai. So we see this powerful destructive force. And then in Isaiah 13 and in Joel 1.15, these prophets talk about Shaddai as a god of destruction, comparing him to storms of locusts who strip the land clean. The prophets use a type of alliteration. They say, Keshad Mishaddai, which is the destruction of the destroyer, to emphasize this aspect of God. God is a destroyer god. And then in the writings, we see Shaddai as a combination of this nourishing, abundant God and this destroyer God. In Psalm 68, God rescues the righteous and the afflicted by scattering and destroying the local kings. But in the same act, God scatters kings and sends snow, which is a symbol of abundant blessings. And then in Psalm 91, we see God keep the writer safe from destruction. In the book of Job, the name Shaddai is used 31 times, which is well over half of the times it's used in the whole Bible. Throughout the book of Job, Job and his friends wrestle with the character of God. Is he really a nourisher and a giver of fruit? Is he really abundant? Or didn't he just destroy everything in Job's life and kill all of his children? So we see the writers of the writing section of the Bible really wrestling with this idea of who God is. Is he a destroyer God or is he a nourisher God? And that brings us to the book of Ruth, which is the last mention of El Shaddai in the writings and the last mention of El Shaddai in the whole Hebrew Bible. So in chapter one, after her husband and her sons die, Naomi says that Shaddai made her bitter and opposed and humiliated her. But the story doesn't end there. If you listen to Phil's message a few months ago on the book of Ruth, I'll be reading pretty much the same material, but focusing more specifically on the character of Naomi. So let's read the book of Ruth, chapter 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his sons were Mahlon and Kilion. As a side note, Kilion means dying guy, and Mahlon means sick guy. So that might show you how Elimelech and Naomi were feeling about the future of their family. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. Big surprise and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. 
She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you, or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered, for Shaddai has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed or humiliated me, and the Shaddai has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess. They they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi sees herself as being afflicted by Shaddai. Her life is just about as bad as it can get. Without a husband or a son in that time in history, it was almost impossible for a woman to survive on her own. And I almost hear frustration in her voice and sarcasm. She says, the nourisher has left me with no nourishment. I mean, the whole story started with there being a a famine in the land. There was no nourishment in the first place, and God has destroyed even all of the things that she did have. But then, what happens? Ruth goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem, and Naomi's relative, Boaz, marries Ruth and takes them both in his family to take care of them. We'll skip to the end of the story to see this great conclusion. We'll read from Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. It says, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
So the neighborhood women say to Naomi, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. That word that they use that's sustain is also a word that means nourish. So what is this other than a fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham and Sarah? In her old age, she was given a child, a child who she wasn't able to nourish, but God nourished, a child who would also be an ancestor of Jesus. We see the parallels between Naomi and Sarah. So who was God to Naomi? Was he the sovereign God in whose world was famine and death of her husband and sons? Was she an afflicted woman? Well, yes, very much so. And the destroyer God was very real to her. But was he also the nourishing God who sustained her and gave her a grandson against all odds? Yes, very much so. And the nourishing God was very real to her. Now, do you think that Naomi's life was just all sunshine and rainbows from that point on? Well, of course not. The story ends, but we can assume that she still had grief from her husband and sons dying, and I'm sure that other things happened in her life after this story. But through all of this, her challenges with her faith in God, with her suffering and difficulties and uncertainties, she learned more about who God is. I want to share with you a bit of my own theodicy odyssey, and how I've grown to see God as both a destroyer and a nourisher. Before I moved to Charlottesville, I spent a few years in Eastern Europe. I lived in the city of Odessa, Ukraine, and then I moved to the neighboring country of Moldova. A few months after moving to Moldova, Russia invaded Ukraine. My wife and I were on a missionary team, serving with a church in Moldova. We had Ukrainians, Russians, and other people from all over the world on our team and in our church. I'll never forget seeing the faces of the Russians and Ukrainians on the team, stained with tears as they comforted each other amidst incredible fear for their families. The mission team was staying at a conference center when the war began, and we immediately turned it into a refugee center. Thousands of refugees passed through our home, each individual trying to understand what this new world was that we were all living in. Several of my closest friends had serious emotional crises, as everything that they took comfort in was taken away from them. The impact of all of this on children was harrowing to me. Innocent kids who ought to be playing and purely enjoying life were hiding in bomb shelters, separated from their fathers and brothers, losing their homes, and growing up to hate an earthly enemy. As I processed these events, I descended into darker and darker realities until I arrived at this conclusion. I wrote this in my journal in August of 2022. I see humans as the chief evil in the world, and I am angry with God for creating them. So I saw humans as evil, and I saw God as destroying the world through the creation of humanity. I wanted God to stop it all and destroy all of humanity. I couldn't understand why God saved Noah and his family from the flood. The God of Shaddai, the destroying God, was very real to me. But over the past year, I've been blessed to be able to grow out of that stark understanding of the world. I've come to realize that humans are also capable of beautiful and amazing things, and there is more to us than destroying and being destroyed. I live near the University of Virginia, and I went onto the grounds to prepare for this lesson. I took a break from reading and writing to get something to drink and to observe the world around me. I sat on a small hill overlooking a grassy sward. At first, I was just enjoying the sunlight through the trees the light breeze, and the beautiful fall colors. Then I saw two students a few hundred feet away starting to throw a football to each other, missing more often than catching. 
After watching them for a while, I noticed a mother with her baby just a few dozen feet from me. The baby was trying to crawl sideways down the hill to his mother, but after a little progress, he would get distracted and try to climb back up the hill. A dog took it upon herself to chase every squirrel in sight, which was no small feat. The kids on the lawn were joined by a third, and their catch rate increased significantly. A small flock of birds flew overhead, calling out to each other. The baby to my right was stuck and unable to crawl up the hill, so he made a small grunt of desperation and his mother helped him straighten out and he climbed a few more inches. As I watched these scenes, I was brought to tears as I saw around me how good God's world is. I still don't fully understand why God created us in the first place, and I still become angry when I hear about what evil things we do to each other. But God is a God who nourishes and sustains his creation, and it is beautiful. There are many people who have a narrow understanding of who God is. If God doesn't answer a prayer to take care of me or the people close to me, is he really who he says he is? Doesn't that make God a liar? I know many people who have left God because of this unwillingness to grow in their understanding of who God is and how there are some things that we really don't understand about him. Because who is God? How can Shaddai be both destruction and nourishment? It really doesn't make sense. But in my journey, I have learned to hold these two conflicting themes in tension with each other. What about you? How do you see God? How can you see God as El Shaddai? Take stock of your current understanding of God. What expectations do you have for God that he doesn't seem to be meeting? Do you lean towards a worldview that paints God as a destroyer or as a nourisher? How can you introduce balance and nuance into that view? If you want to learn more about this, I recommend studying the book of Job. But I'll warn you, it won't give you any answers. But if you meditate on it, you may learn new truths about God's characters. And please be willing to update your understanding of who God is. I hope that was helpful. And if you liked it, would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're in the Charlottesville, Virginia area, would like to stop in and visit us at a Sunday service, please send us a note or visit our website at blueridgedisciples.org for more information.